Hi, I'm Bill Osmolsky with the McIver Institute, and this is the McIver Newsmakers Podcast. We're joined today by Representative John Mako, the chair of the Wisconsin Assembly's Ways and Means Committee. Representative, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So you're the go-to guy in the Assembly when it comes to questions about the state's financial health. Yeah, that's what they say. Yeah. So, you know, just kind of laying out um, everything that's going on right now, you know, in terms of, you know, the state's finances, just kind of a quick crash course here. Um, mm-hmm. on, on the surface, everything looks great. We had the economy shut down for, you know, pretty much shut down for most of Europe, but we still ended the fiscal year in June with a $1.2 billion surplus, the biggest surplus in 20 years. And uh, $400 million, it was $400 million more than we expected. Um, then we have the governor saying he was able to find $300 million in savings throughout the bureaucracy, which might, I wonder if he might have accidentally exposed some government bloat there. Um, but yeah, so I mean, the state looks like it's doing great. Um, you would think no tough calls in the next budget, but the governor's saying it's going to be a quote, very, very, very difficult budget. So what exactly is going on here? Yeah, that's, uh, that's poor leadership, poor statesmanship. So the reality is the message I want your listeners to know is that we are in profound shape, but that that didn't happen by accident. This has been a very slow and deliberate uh, process in turning the state of Wisconsin around and putting us at you know in a financial condition that is is enviable by many many states and so myself and others uh, other colleagues have deliberately put these things in place and, and it's important to realize when we talk about tax reform or a well-run state it's not a question of doing one or two things hundred percent better it's a question of doing a hundred little things one percent better and so we've consistently done that over the last 10 years and i think it's important for people to realize that um we have been able to give everything and contrary to what folks say i think if you take a survey bill and you ask people um you know is it my understanding how many here have the understanding that we've cut uh we've cut money to k through 12 or cut money to universities that's just categorically not true all you got to do is look at the CAFR, the consolidated annual financial report and you see year after year after year for the last 10 years those numbers continue to go up now they're not as much they're not going up as much as people would like but they're still going up but it seems bizarre to me so you get you know the governor asked for let's say a billion dollars in additional uh school spending and we give them 600 million they call that a $400 million cut. And that's just bizarre to me. I mean, you know, you wouldn't go to your boss and say, I need a $10 raise. And he says, well, I can't give you a $10 raise bill, but I can give you a $6 raise. You don't say you got a $4 cut. And so um, that's the problem I continue to have with the administration. And, and so the word, and that's why we had our hearing this week. I wanted to make sure that the people of the state of Wisconsin, as well as our committee had the full details as to exactly how good uh, where the state of Wisconsin is. And, and there's certainly there's going to continue to be uh, challenges and managerial issues as we as we do, as you do in any organization on a day to day basis. But to go back to your summary, yes, um, we uh, showed one point two billion dollars in surplus at the end of this last fiscal year. And so the readers know that's the end of June. So June 30th is when that uh, came through. But then just this past November, we did some forward-looking assumptions. So looking backwards in the rearview mirror, that's easy. Anybody can do that. And it's looking forward that we need to have some idea of where we're going. And I want to tell you, um, as you know, with the hearing, we have the privilege in the state of Wisconsin of having a gentleman by the name of Bob Lang uh, and Peter Barker. Bob Lang is the head of the uh, uh, Legislative Fiscal Bureau, and Peter Barker is the head of the Department of Revenue. Um, 
And both of those guys I have a lot of respect for, uh, and they're able to take major issues. I mean, to come up with these projections is a macroeconomic challenge. We're talking about $82 billion over a 24-month period, and you have to look at sales tax, use tax, excise tax, just all kinds of different issues that are ebbing and flowing, or some are, are jigging and some are jagging, and you have to factor that all into an equation, and most of the time, we are spot on. And so when you compare that to what so many of the other states are doing, the other thing that I do, Bill, is I chair the uh, uh, Budget and Revenue and SALT uh, State and Local Task Force for the National Council of State Legislators. I have another meeting after this one uh, for that purpose. And so I get, a, 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 I get the ability to sit down and talk with uh, my fellow uh, financial folks in all the various other states and what they're doing. And I want to tell you, we're in profoundly good shape. So, um, yep, we had $1.2 billion, $400 million more than we thought. On top of that, we're approaching nearly $800 million in our rainy day fund. So when we did those calculations in November, looking forward, saying, okay, that's fine. That's what we got now. But with the effect of COVID, with the effect of some of these other things, what does it look like for the end of this coming year? And guess what? Same story that we will have 1.1 or so billion dollars in our cash balance and about another uh, seven or eight hundred million dollars in our rainy day fund for almost a total of 1.8 billion dollars in cash. Now we're going to see some things change there, uh, but under no circumstances do I think we have a budgeting problem, unless of course the administration wants to spend more than that. Yeah, obviously that's the that's the that's the first thing that kind of you know grabs my attention. I mean, $1.2 billion. I mean, that's, that's a lot of money, but, um, you know, I, I think, uh, the governor's kind of made it clear that his, um, he would love to spend, uh, a billion dollars a quarter, uh, with, uh, his COVID response. So I, I could see, I could see him go and that just, that just one, one item on his agenda. So I can see him going through this pretty quick. Yeah, and I don't. That's not going to happen. And so, you know, you you saw in his last budget proposal. So his last budget proposal. So the governor uh, puts out his wish list. They're working on it now, and he'll present that to us. It's supposed to be done by the end of July, uh, January. It, it usually never is. It's always extended out. But we'll get it at the end of January, first part of February, and we'll take a look at it. His last one was about twelve hundred pages and included an additional two billion dollars worth of spending above and beyond what we. Uh, what we could have had. And I am grateful. And so after months of looking at it, trying to come up with some compromise, we literally could not get through it. It was such a mess uh, that we simply, we went to, we, we, we call what we go to base. What that means is we just throw the whole thing out and say, there's, there's, we can't amend this anymore. It is such a mess. We're going to just start over. And so that's what we did. And we put together a budget uh, that turned out to be 511 pages. Now, the reason I'm telling you that is his budget was 1,200 pages, ours was 511. Typically, the budgets are around 1,200 pages, as you know, um, but there was, in this in this situation, in this administration, there just simply was essentially 700 pages that we could not come to an understanding and an agreement on, and, and we didn't get it done. So the thing that I like to tell people is it's not so much that the governor's going to get to do stuff that we don't want him to do, it's that we're not going to do stuff that we ought to be doing. And so um, we had a 511-page budget instead of a 1,200-page budget. It means there's a lot of things in there uh, that we would have liked to see done that didn't get done. And I suspect he's going to do that again. You know, the, the spendthrift concept 
of the mindset in this administration is staggering to me. And when you've got an organization that has a fully funded pension that we do, um, that is paying our bills on time, we actually have a billion dollars less debt than we had just eight years ago. And that, by the way, a billion dollars, what that is for your readers, that's $4 million a week, $200 million a year in less interest, in less debt service that we're paying now. So we are a well-run state, but again, that didn't happen by accident. That was very deliberate by leaders in the, uh, by, by leaders such like uh, Howard Markline on the Senate side and Dale Kling on the Senate side, myself uh, and uh, Bob Whitkey on the House side and several others um, that are good fiscal conservatives and business guys that know how to budget these things. So I think we're in really good shape. Um, and, and, you know, we should maybe talk about how solid those forward-looking numbers might be, Bill. Yeah, so before we get to that, I just want to, you know, touch real, go back real quick to, I mean, the governor's proposal. Uh, he's already, I feel like he's kind of shot himself in the foot a little bit by saying he was able to find $300 million of savings, you know, throughout the state agencies. Um that, that to me feels like $300 million that we could say, well, apparently we didn't need it because nobody noticed any change in uh, government services over the past year, except for, of course, uh, DWD. But I mean, like, how does, you know, how does the governor come back and say, yeah, I really need, you know, to increase, you know, spending by this much when obviously $300 million went unnoticed, essentially. Well, and I applaud him for that. You know, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. And so if, if that's legit and I've not looked at it, you know, if they were able to, whatever that is, whatever, for whatever reason, they were able to shave $300 million off of the expense side, that is absolutely admirable. But let's keep this into perspective. We're an $82 billion biannual budget. So a 5% budget, a 5% savings, like how many households, how many businesses have to prune things by, let's just say, a, a mere 5%. 5% would be $4.1 billion in savings. So um, I applaud him for the $300 million in savings. And obviously that's real cash. So um, I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. Okay. Yeah. I just say it's, it'd be tough to get that, make the case and put it back in is all. <laughs> well, you know, and, and again, if it were me, you know, if it were my company, I would suspect that we could find much, much more than that. Like I say, I can't believe for the life of me uh, that you can't ring out. When I look at some of the redundancy, uh, and even and especially now, every single organization in the country right now is looking at this massive paradigm shift that we've had. Even you and I, we're not doing this in person. I'm up in Green Bay. You're down in Madison. And so um, every single organization is saying to themselves, gee whiz, do we really need that $250 million office building or do we just, uh, uh, you know, because everybody's Zooming now and do we really need the private jet because nobody's flying anymore? And so I always tongue in cheek say on, on the education level, we gave the University of Eau Claire $250 million last year. Maybe all we need to do is buy them a new camera. Um, so, um, I think we have to be aware of it. And this was my problem with some of the stuff that, uh, secretary Barkas said during our interview is they laid out all of, and this is the problem that the governor is, is going on. He is trying to maintain what he considers normal. I got news for everybody. That's not the case anymore. Every single time a paradigm shifts, and that's what we've gotten here, every single time a paradigm shifts, everything goes back to zero. Everything has to restart. And so you can look at some of the transitional things that happened um, 
uh, in the early 80s where we deregulated trucking and it decimated the three-tier distribution system and some of those other things. Those jobs are not coming back. There are some jobs in this economy that are simply not coming back. And so subsidizing those or trying to get them back to their old rate doesn't make sense. Education is another one. You know, the, the, the way we spent money on education in this state is not coming back. And so let's acknowledge that and ask, what is that new distribution system? What is that new paradigm? And how do we function within that? And that's the opportunity. When you look, the reason our revenues are so up is because there's a lot of smart people that are looking at it and saying, well, now, wait a minute. What's the silver lining in this? Well, the silver lining is if I'm a businessman, I don't need to send my guys all around the world and spend thousands and thousands of dollars on travel and hotels. I don't need to put up a new office building. Um, there's just a lot of things that you're seeing some synergy for, and, and consumers are responding. It's that invisible hand that Adam Smith talks about when he talks about the economy. People are not doing without. I just had two pairs of shoes delivered to me uh, this morning um, that I ordered two days ago. And so um, there's a lot of that, even groceries now. And so when you look at what those new deliverables are, um, the smart and dynamic organizations are uh, taking advantage of that. Not the least of which, by the way, I happened to tour the Foxconn to bring up another uh, salient point here that the Democrats are just completely off base on, is that uh, I toured the Foxconn facility on Thursday. And what a dynamic organization that is. Now, did they put in a 10, you know, do they have 10,000 jobs? No, not yet. Did they spend $3 billion in infrastructure? No, not yet. But guess what? They spent $750 million, three quarters of a billion dollars in facilities. They will this year be the largest property taxpayer in Racine County. Their starting wage for just a rank and file person working in is $16.50 an hour, and they, they're hiring by the dozens. So there's some opportunities here as we look at that entire smart ecosystem and what is driving the economy in the state of Wisconsin. And sadly, we had uh, when the governor's first order of business in his first week on the job was to remove the Wisconsin Open for Business signs off of, this, off of our state line borders and put his name on there. I had written a piece at the time that I said, I hope this is not foretelling it yet. It has been. The, the animosity towards industry and business by this administration is staggering. But that's what's happening. The businesses and organizations are taking a longer term approach. Uh, I know that all of our companies, our family businesses certainly had to readjust, but they are now moving forward. Everybody is up. We've all hired people. I think we've added 50 or 60 jobs, almost 15 percent of our workforce. I think we're up to 450 employees now between the various family companies. And so. When you look at what's happening, uh, there's a profound amount, amount of opportunity. And when you look at those revenue numbers within the numbers that Lang and, and Barca gave us, you'll see where that's coming from. And so I think there's nothing but good news in all of that. So going back to, you know, changing kind of our entire approach to the budget. I mean, our capital budget this year in the state of Wisconsin should be zero dollars. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, since, hey, well, uh, and we I'll tell you what, the it, we got. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, Bill, take a look at what Tommy Thompson, I'll tell you, Tommy is still Tommy. You know, the man is 79 years old, uh, but uh, one of my other jobs, the other hats that I wear is I'm vice chair of the audit committee. So we had a, 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 an audit of the university system that we heard this week as well, which was very, very telling. 
and Governor Thompson, who's now the president of the university, Assistant Thompson. So I just kept calling him governor because people are going, well, are you governor? Are you Mr. President? Are you secretary? It's like, look, you're going to be Governor Thompson as far as I'm concerned. That's just what I'm going to call you. And so, um, but anyway, uh, they are looking at that very same thing. And he said, I mean, they've got they've got to spend a lot of money on technology. And so will we. We've got to figure out ways that we can put 5G technology up in the middle of Rhinelander. And there's a way to do that, by the way. Foxconn can do it. Um, and so um, which that could be another podcast, Bill. Um, but um, to- Tommy's looking at it and he said the same thing. You know, I pushed. I said, gee, I think we've got two campuses we don't even need. Let's shut them down. He goes, no, 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 no. We're not shutting down any campuses. But we have asked all the chancellors to take a look. And are there some buildings there that maybe we could condo or we could turn into apartments or there's some things that we just don't need? So I think he's well aware that there is infrastructure there um, that is not needed um, or needs to be repurposed and restructured. And the other issue I think on campus as well is, um, you know, we used to tease, everybody used to say, oh, the University of Phoenix, that's not a real school. They don't even have buildings. People are teaching out of their living rooms. That's not a real school. Well, guess what? Now every school is the University of Phoenix, but we got worse tech support. And so, uh, we've got to acknowledge that and find out what those deliverables are. And I think the last thing we need to be doing is spending billions and hundreds of millions of dollars on building out, on hiring uh, data contact managers and uh, uh, studios in all 12 of these campuses that are all literally competing for each other. Just on my Instagram feed alone, I can't begin to tell you how many um ads I'm getting for new online MBA programs from, you know, various campuses that are not UWGB, which is in my district just up the road here. And so we're already spending advertising dollars to poach uh, students from other campuses. And uh, so there's got to be some acknowledgement on what that looks like, just as any other business would do. I mean, the reason Amazon is crushing brick and mortar stores is because they can do that through consolidated distribution systems and reach me uh, um, as well as you and anybody else in the country um, the same way and simultaneously. The universities have that opportunity too. So again, there's an opportunity there, uh, but you, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. One of the committee assignments I asked to be on is the state building commission for that very reason, as I can't believe we should be spending a whole lot of building money on buildings this year. Oh, those will be some interesting uh, committee hearings coming up then. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, hey, so, you know, with the paradigm shift, uh, also with the budget, it, it, so is this year the year that we uh, we uh, drop base uh, doubled budgeting and, and just make every department start at zero? If you can make me, if you make me dictator for a day, I'll do that. Um, <laughs> no, no, you, you hit the nail on the head. And, and um, I, I think, that, that's where we run into these problems is that folks say, well, they've cut expenses here and cut expenses there. No, no, no. When you look at the absolute dollars every single year and you get to CAFR, and I, I don't have it in front of me here, but I'm thinking it's on page 220 if my memory serves me right, which I know that's a really dorky thing to say, but I believe it's on well, I'm impressed. Two, 220. Wait a minute. I do have a CAFR here. Let's look and see if it's on page 220 or not. I got an over under going here. Yeah, right. Um Aha! It is page two twenty and two twenty one. So, um, yeah, that, how's that for dorkiness? <laughs> so again, when you look at that and you see the changes in that position, you know, based on accrual counting, and you look at every single category from 
uh, all the years down the way back down to 2009, um, you see nothing but great numbers there. And so uh, that's very, very encouraging. But again, on a percentage basis, that's what happens. They go, well, we put in a 10% increase and we only got an eight. And you're going, well, <laughs> we still got an 8% increase. What? I just don't understand that logic. Yeah, I mean, that's but- that's budget math. I mean, I, I remember the um, uh, the state treasurer, um, Sarah Goodlutsky, uh Complaining after the last budget, how you you know the, the the legislature cut a billion dollars out of MPS, you know, and it was just no, exactly it, yeah, they wanted a billion dollars more than we could give them. <laughs> but I'll tell you the frustrating part for me, and I realize this is going to be very very partisan, but you know, the, the, there's the, the they have not. All we have to do is look back and see what's happened time and time again. And we've had, you know, we had Tony Earl and he messed things up and they're going, oh, my gosh, let's get the adults back in here. So we bring Tommy Thompson and he straightens things out and cleans it all up. And they go, well, we need to be fair. Let's go ahead and bring in Jim Doyle. And so we bring in Jim Doyle. It's like, oh, my gosh, it's such a disaster. He even knew he shouldn't run for another term. And so we got that. And let's keep in mind, when we took over from Jim Doyle just 10 years ago, what we had to do is we had a $600 million hole in K-12. through When you want to talk about who underfunded K-12, through it was Jim Doyle, $600 million. And he filled that hole with a one-time Obama stimulus money. Now, let's all remember what that was. That was supposed to be shovel-ready projects. Shovel-ready projects. It didn't go for any shovel-ready projects. It all went in to fill a hole in K-12 through spending. And so when, of course, that went away, then we had to backfill it all. Um, we owed the state of Minnesota, I think, $79 million. We just quit paying them. Um, we we owned the, the uh, unemployment fund was upside down. And so every small business in the state of Wisconsin was getting not only making their normal payments into the unemployment fund, but then they were making a special assessment. They were getting billed every month, a special assessment because the thing was upside down. And so we had to fill all of that stuff almost to the tune of a billion dollars. On top of that, our structural deficit at that time was nearly $4 billion. It's less than half of that now. So that took another $2 billion worth of liquidity to get caught up with that. And then we paid off a billion dollars worth of debt. So do the math on that bill. That's $4 billion worth of additional liquidity that we put back in. If you were running a balance sheet on here, our ca- our, uh, our balance sheet would look substantially better. And so, again, then when you look at the income side, the income statement of this side of this thing, if the governor has found $300 million in savings, God bless them. And then we've got some additional revenues. Some of the stuff that we did, by the way, not accidental, is having the foresight to implement. I was instrumental in moving that tax bill through the Supreme Court in the state of South Dakota. And then we pushed it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And they were able to get that fairness between online stores and brick and mortar stores. But we knew that was going to generate revenue. We didn't want that to be an additional expense to the citizens of the state of Wisconsin. So we insisted that any of that revenue that came in for that would be automatically offset on income tax. And so what did we see a month ago? 252 million dollars in excess uh, internet tax. And that is all going off dollar for dollar right off of the uh, uh, income tax, which literally drops for the first two brackets. And by the way, that's not a a boon for rich people. That's the first two brackets. So people making less than $40,000 a year are going to see their taxes go down 12%, 11.7%. And so that's some significant stuff. And we've been able to do all of that and still run these surpluses. So a good, efficient organization um, always runs that, uh, always runs uh, well, and a bad, sloppy one will always have, um, you know, a lot of friction and have some inefficiencies. So that's what we're going to continue to try to do as we move into this next budget. We'll see. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't realize it, but, you know, here in what, I mean, there aren't a lot of states out there where current government employees have, you know, in Wisconsin, uh, current government government employees don't have to worry about, hey, is am I going to have a pen? Is my is my pension going to be there for me in thirty years when I finally retire? We don't we don't have vendors wondering, you know, is, is the state going to actually pay me this month for for my services? I mean, those those you know seem like pretty basic things, but I mean, heck, just just look south of us, you know, that that those can't be taken for granted. No, you're you're absolutely right, Bill. And when you talk to David, the gentleman that runs SWIB, that's the State of Wisconsin Investment Board, they manage $110 billion of people's retirement money, $110 billion. That's staggering. When you look at, so the Dow Jones Industrial Average is 30 companies. I don't know if people know that, but when you hear about the Dow Jones Industrial Average, that's just literally the average of 30 companies, not 300 companies, not 500 companies, 30. And that changes from year to year. I mean, you know, when it was first created, of course, Microsoft wasn't a thing. Uh, and now that's on there. But when you look at the market cap of some of those companies, uh, Swib could buy them, you know, could buy the whole company everywhere, globally, nationally. Um, so they're massive. And uh, we, because of my role, I try to visit with them uh, on an ongoing basis to see how they're doing. Uh, we audited them at one time, and then I brought the whole committee over there, and we sat and visited with them and tried to stay in contact with them to make sure that we're on target with what's going on there. Uh, but they have done a phenomenal job, and that's the problem that we're seeing with some of these care bills that are coming through D.C., is that other states are now trying to see this as an opportunity to bail themselves out of some of their legacy problems, like unfunded pensions and other major expenses. And what you do when you do that, when you dump that all on, it's fine to help out states that need help um, managing the COVID situation, but these are issues that have nothing to do with COVID. This is because of their poor legacy planning. And you see the mess that they've got going on in Illinois, and now they got their speaker mad again. He's probably gonna, you know, it, it stinks on ice. He looks like the rest of those guys, like uh, Blagojevich and uh, and Danny Rostenkowski, and he probably needs a cell right next to those guys. And so, uh, you know, the corruption down there is stunning, uh, and yet they want to pass that all off into a federal package, bury all their problems in that, when what that does is that spreads that liability across the 6,000 people here in the state of Wisconsin. Now, we got to pay for that. I'm not going to let that happen. Now, you know, talking about, you know, our our fiscal health here in Wisconsin was, I mean, we did, you know, as we've been saying, I mean, it was somewhat surprising that amidst all the chaos of COVID, you know, the state still ended with a surplus. Um, how are we doing in terms of, you know, our state economy? I mean, one, I mean, how many businesses are we going to lose over the next year? Uh, if, mm-hmm. we, if we continue with this, you know, semi lockdown of the economy. And then, I mean, how does that how does that snowball and eventually how does that eventually affect the the state? budget? Right. I mean, we, we can't be insulated from that forever. Yeah, but let me talk about where that money's coming from. So I think it's it's important to break that down when you sit down and you look at all the various revenue streams that that constitute our budget. So there's sales tax, there's use tax. I mean, so we sit and look at just the tax revenue from cigarettes, for example. We look at the tax revenue from uh, excise tax on gasoline. We And so you have to break it down. You can't just say the economy and, and paint it with one brush. So but those things all move 
a counter to each other. And so just like building a good investment portfolio, if they're all going up or they're all going, if they're all going up at the same time, that's a bad portfolio because they'll all go down at the same time. And so we've got various things that move and you can see these charts. And so what, what's happening right now, and we, it's very clear. I mean, I'm not a healthcare guy, but I am a numbers and a, and a data guy. And so when you clearly what's happening, and this will lead into your economy question, is so our sales tax revenue numbers are up. And so are they all up? No. So we break that down. And so obviously the restaurant and the hospitality industry is substantially down. That's off big time. And I don't have that data in front of me, but it's uh, it's substantial. But then you look at online retail sales and it's through the roof. I don't think you can get a swimming pool built in Brown County for the next two years. They are just backed up. Um, TV sets and furniture, uh, all of those types of things. Folks are spending money. They're saying, look, if I'm not going to spend several thousand dollars on a vacation this year, let's let's trick out our family room. And so they get an 85-inch TV. And so um, those numbers, so although the hospitality industry is hurting, um, the other areas are going up. Corporate tax is another one. So again, where did that come from? That wasn't done by accident. So everybody talks about um, TICJA, the tax uh, bill that came through uh, Donald Trump's tax bill, which was Paul Ryan's tax bill, and Donald Trump uh, tweaked it up a little bit, and then they passed that. And that has had significant changes uh, for the state of Wisconsin's revenue because now all of a sudden, if you were a small business owner, you were an LLC or a subchapter S corporation, you'd say to yourself, well, wait a minute, we're going to switch our tax ability. We're going to move from a, a, a instead of paying that tax personally, we're going to go ahead and pay it corporately. Now, why is that significant? Because the highest tax bracket in the state of Wisconsin for a person is 7.6%. For a corporation, it's 7.9%. So many of these folks sat down and they said, wait a minute, we don't mind paying. We're going to go from 7.6% to 7.9. We're going to pay the highest bracket, but we're going to get an offset on the federal stuff. So we're going to go ahead and do that. And so uh, many, many, that's, that's also driving our revenue. Um, uh, and then collections. Um, again, uh, if you ask Peter Barker, he will give credit to, to Governor Walker with his audit 2020 platform. And we're now looking at some of these things and they've generated uh, revenue from businesses outside of the state that didn't feel they had a tax liability. We were able to demonstrate to that they had. Uh, one collection was about $100 million. Another one was about $87 million. And so there's some very, very significant collections and people are now remitting into the state of Wisconsin that weren't before. And so that that's where those numbers are and why I think they're more um, supportive than not. And again, when you look at our brokerage business, for example, and we talk to all of our economists globally, um, the Dow is at 30,000. Those are forward-looking economic indicators. And, and we believe that we're going to see, you know, we could see a Dow at 35,000 a year from now. And so all this gloom and doom that uh, the COVID is negative and the COVID is not, I mean, yes, they are for some industries and for some organizations. I have a good friend of mine who's in the concert business. He's dead. There's, there's, I don't see him ever coming back from that. Um, taverns and hospitality, uh, restaurant businesses, um, those types of big things, hotel industry, decimated. Don't see him coming back from that. But the flip side is, there are a lot of things that are coming back from that, many, many things. And so um, when we look at the opportunities here, I, I don't know if we picked up on this or if the call dropped, um, but I was in at Foxconn last Thursday 
and they can't hire enough people. They're going by leaps and bounds. They will be the largest server farm. If you remember a couple of months ago, there was a big brouhaha about a company in China called Huawei. And Huawei made these little server chips and they would go into all the computers all around the world. And the concern was, is that, hey, those little sneaky son of a guns, they could put these chip, they could put a little gizmo on those chips and bug our machines. And then we're putting them in all these factories and they would have a way of stealing our data. Don't know if that's true, but that was the allegation. And in any case, so many organizations have decided, wait a minute, Either it's true or it's not true, but it could be true. So what we want is a domestic source for those servers and those server chips. And guess where that's being done now? Down in Wisconsin. They will be the largest server farmer in North America here shortly. They're just about to open a million square foot building. They're the largest taxpayer in Racine County. So anybody that tells you that Foxconn was a boondoggle has never been there and doesn't know what they're talking about. But that's the issue when you talk about the economy. The economy isn't one stagnant thing. It's a very dynamic thing. It ebbs and flows. It's what um, Adam Smith called the invisible hand of capitalism. It flows like water. And what we're seeing right now are some very, very positive things that I think for the smart and aware people, both in a career and a business and investment opportunities, are going to see some wonderful things if they move into the right direction. Um, so I do not have a negative attitude about the economy moving forward. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy for everyone. There will be some winners and there will be some losers. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess just in terms of you know, not just, yeah. So, I mean, in terms of the economy and, and uh, you know, the, the state, you know, the state's financial health, I mean, what do you see as right. our top challenges, you know, for, you know, not just, I think our ahead, top challenge. Yeah. And not just a year ahead, but, you know, like looking, looking beyond that. Cause you know, like everybody's got the, the long-term fears of, you know, how, how long does this all go on for? I think our top challenge is to, is to support the industries that are future forward-looking assumptions and not the buggy whip industries. If it's a buggy whip industry, it's sad. we got to help them land somewhere and transition to something. Uh, but that's what we need to do. Uh, you know, anytime technology has moved, I do a lot of reading. And there's a gentleman by the name of R.G. Letourneau, and he's the one that invented the, the bulldozer and the earth movers and all the rest of that stuff. And, and what a wonderful way that was for him to build roads and, and uh, dig ditches and things. But guess what? That put thousands of men out of work because in the past, to build a road, you would literally have hundreds of people with shovels and wheelbarrows. And all of a sudden, they didn't need to do that anymore. And so, but did those people go jobless? No, they were able to be challenged into more productive, uh, better paying, cleaner positions. And that's what we're seeing in this state. So we've got to figure out the challenge we have as legislators is how do we help those that are transitioning out of a buggy whip industry into something that's more dynamic, that'll be life sustaining and family sustaining as we move forward and be smart enough and brave enough to acknowledge that. And that's true with education as well. So we have to figure out what to support and what not to, and to be brave enough to realize that, um, you know, it's, we're not going back. There's no, there's no going back. We're kind of starting this thing off the way we always start off the budget. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm been listening to the people's budgets, uh, the governor's, uh, people budget <laughs> listening sessions online and mm -hmm. you know, people, the, you know, the people that are talking, the special interest groups that are attending those are bringing up the same things. We want Medicaid for all. We want, uh, right. we, we want broadband everywhere. We want, uh, you know, just, 
we want to pay healthcare workers a lot more. So I mean, it just the the exact same things that I heard two years ago. So right. So those aren't forward-looking assumptions. That's just nonsense. And so that's special interest, special uh, concept. Now I would agree with the broadband. So again, what I just said was is we've got to take a look and see. Uh, what are those areas that are forward-looking assumptions that are more supportive in nature? And so I absolutely believe that we ought to have connectivity. If we've learned anything, um, if school, if we're not, if we don't need to spend money on, on brick and mortar for schools, then what does that look like? And so we have to have um, the type of uh, gig technology that allows the bandwidth uh, for everybody at the speeds that we need. Um, Foxconn's got 5G technology, uh, 5G technology that's functioning inside their facility. They have the ability to export that and put that up in, let's say, Rhineland or someplace where they need to do that. And that's what we need to spend money and energy on because as people decentralize, I mean, all you have to do is look. So Illinois certainly has a lot of problems financially, and there's a lot of organizations that are just flocking out of there. And you saw in the last two months that uh, Tesla and Hewlett Packard just last week said, goodbye, California, you can have your nonsense, we're out of here. And so as those organizations are moving out of those centralized locations, realizing that we don't need to be there, well, guess what? When we get a decent governor that understands business and will and will uh, compete for some of those things, Wisconsin is a very, very competitive place uh, and would be a wonderful place for those guys to re relocate. We've got no shortage of land here. So I think the challenge is, is to sift through all of the all of those wish lists. All, and those are nothing but Christmas lists, by the way. You know, everybody wants a new pony, but, you know, you got to look at it and you got to say, wait a minute. The concept of broadband, I love that idea. And that's one thing we should do. So when you say, what are we going to look at? It's going to be sifting out the, the real opportunities from, you know, the wish lists. And so uh, that's what we need to do. So, uh, you know, I'd like to say that, you know, my takeaway from, uh, from uh, our interview here has been Wisconsin is in a great position. Things are going to be a lot better, you know, are, are going to end up a lot better over the next couple years than people might realize right now. And two years from now, uh, if, if the political winds change a little bit in the, uh, in the executive branch, uh, things might even be better after that. Right. The fundamentals are absolutely in place. That is the takeaway I would take. But again, we have to be a, 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 a aware. We have to be aware and, and willing to move into those, into that direction and support what needs to be supported. And, uh, and that includes, I mean, the problem that we've had is we need to be able to chew gum and walk at the same time. And so we have to be able to deal with COVID and make sure that we're supporting the healthcare industry and whatever has to be done there. Um, and so we've got to do that. Um, and I happen to think, you know, decentralizing it and, and less government interference as opposed to, uh, you know, if you want to, <laughs> people that want government, that want Medicare for all, just don't understand economics. It's bizarre to me how they can say such a thing. They don't really know what they're talking about. Um, and so, um, you know, we, but nonetheless, we still have to support health care. But at the same time, that's not our main job. Our main function is is the functions of the state of Wisconsin. And we have to look past that. And so many people can't see the forest through the trees. You know, they're just looking at the individual trees and they're not looking forward enough. And that's what we need to be doing. That's what the smart states are doing is they're looking ahead. They're managing past the COVID situation and saying, what does it look like on the other side? And 
Are we going to get back to the conversation where we need to have roads and bridges? Is it, are we going to get back to the conversation that we have to have a tax code that makes sense? Is it, are we going to get back to the situation where we have have job training and the ability so that we can bring these 21st century jobs to the state of Wisconsin? And that's the conversation that's missing. It's too reactionary right now and not proactive. So I think as the legislature, that's what we're going to be doing. And we're having a, a brainstorming session tomorrow, actually, <coughs> um, in Madison, excuse me, not in, uh, in uh, Wisconsin Dells tomorrow, um, to have some of those forward-looking assumptions saying, where are we going? What do we want to stand for? And I can tell you that my committee, uh, we will be meeting on, Mon on uh, Friday, um, not the committee, but several members, not having a quorum, don't anybody have a fit. <laughs> Uh, but talking about what are some of the objectives we want to have in ways and means as it relates to smart tax code to support all the things we, you and I have been talking about, Bill. And so we're not going to be, our committee is not just going to be reactionary. We're the, we're one of the largest and busiest committees in the House. Uh, we cleared somewhere upwards of 80 bills last time, um, passed, I think, 24 of them to the floor. 19 of those were unanimous. So I try to get as unanimous as we can. Um, but rather than just react to bills that come over the transom, we're going to put together some initiatives that are going to talk about some of these forward-looking assumptions that we just talked about. How do we, What's the smartest way going into the new economy and the new paradigm? What's the smartest way to fund local municipalities? What's the going into the new paradigm? Do we want to have more emphasis or less emphasis on consumption taxes or wealth creation taxes? And so those are some of the things that we're going to be doing in our committee to contribute to that. No, that sounds great. Um, and uh, Representative, thank you so much for, for your time. And I mean, I, I'm Thanks sure. Thanks for having me, Bill. Yeah. Again, this is Bill Osmolsky with the McIver Institute, and this was the McIver Newsmakers Podcast. We are joined today by Representative John Mako, the chair of the Assembly Ways and Means Committee. Thank you so much for being with us today, and we will catch you next time.